Happy New Year, Cultivating Place. This week, we open the new year with a visit to some inspiring and inspired plants people in South Africa. South Africa is home to more than 22,000 indigenous seed plants from almost 230 different plant families. It's also home to 10% of the world's flowering plant species. It's also home to diverse cultures of people with both rich and complicated, painful and joyful pasts. Artist and plant lover Megan Godsell botanist Rupert Koopman and their team, including performance artist Tiffany Cornwall and photographers Bopello Kanua and Neo Baepi, explore these relationships in their project, Turning Into Flowers. We'll be right back with the conversation. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. New Year's, new anything for that matter, new moons, new houses, new gardens, new days, are good transition zones for new thinking, for new intentions, goals, and resolve in ourselves, and therefore also in our gardens. They call on us to gird up our clarity and courage. Which brings me to the inspiration behind this week's visit to South Africa. When I think of South Africa, two strong impressions come immediately to mind. Incredible plant diversity from which the whole world has benefited since time began. And incredible cultural conflict and criminal social injustice. These combined truths are of course true in any place that humans and plants meet. But South Africa has served as a crucible of sorts for the rest of us to watch, and we can only hope to learn from. I've never been to South Africa, but in the past few years, I've been very drawn to the work of a group of people who go by the name of Turning Into Flowers, and their captivating and compelling visual and written work exploring the relationship in all its complexity between the beautiful plants and people of South Africa. Artist Megan Godsell and botanist Rupert Koopman join us today via Skype from their homes in South Africa to talk about their project, its path, and its purpose. Welcome to you both. Hi, Jennifer. Hi, Jennifer. I'd love to get started by having you each describe your perspective on the current work that is turning into flowers. Let's start with you, Megan. You are kind of the director-producer on this project. Thank you so much. For me, turning into flowers began as a series of conversations and evolved into a digital platform, a photo platform, a project that has grown into documentary film and art exhibition. But it all stemmed from conversations about intimacy with flowers and the restrictions on that intimacy that come from our cultural and historical background. Mm. And the work has been an unfolding and incredible joy of bringing artists from urban situations, particularly younger artists, particularly artists of color, into the dynamic of intimacy that I was introduced to very young and seeing them connect with the plants that might have been a green blur in the background. Mm -hmm. um, in in previous context and seeing this this intimacy and this love and this passion grow between performers and the plants that they're working with and another incredible and joyous privilege was to present some of that work of dream and intimacy and and to some extent, 
an abstraction. We we are performers and we don't have a science background. And we are working um, in spaces with our first contacts or our our developing relationship with with the plants and to bring that into a space with scientists where Rupert invited us to participate in the Feinbos Forum convention earlier this year. And so to bring that that playfulness and um, intimacy and joy into the space where we were inviting um, people from a, a science and management and conservation background to come and spend time with flower crowns and in um, interview situations where we were talking about love and romance <laughs> and memory. Yeah. yeah. And, and Rupert, tell us a little bit about how you would describe the project from your perspective as a botanist and uh, when you first became involved in it and your, your role in it. Oh, thanks. Um, yeah, so Megan and my relationship is a very modern one in that we met on Twitter and we found a lot of commonality and eventually met up in real life. And there's there's always been this kind of um, reinforcement of, of an interest in plants from both of us. And, and I really like the multidisciplinarity of it, if you could be so clinical about the friendship. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and then once this, uh, the Turning Into Flowers project um, was floated past me, I was like, fantastic, because um, I'm a scientist. I work for the, the state or the provincial conservation agency. And as a result, um, there's a certain um, perspective and way of, of doing that we, we have. And then bringing this artistic, um, more kind of ethereal, esoteric approach to plants is pretty much exactly what I needed this time of, of my life <laughs> in in that, um, you know, we can throw stats at people about conservation and, and how important things are and so forth. But um, through art, you actually feel things. And, and um, also the thing that really appealed to me about the, the project was the documentation, um, because in, in the last couple of years, I've also just become very aware of how much we're losing in terms of people's stories as older people pass away and people aren't doing the same things that, that they used to. Um, so it it just knitted together really nicely into um, this cohesive project that the team put together. And it's it's been really fun to be involved and, and, to, in, and, and to exercise that other part of, of the brain. Yeah. We're going to get into a very specific description of of the project and its various forms and permutations. But I want to I want to go back for each of you and have you describe a little bit about your your early background and the influences that led each of you in whatever way to actually be plant people. Well, for me, one of the beautiful things about this project is I am very much returning to my beginnings with flowers. My grandfather introduced me to plants at a very early age. Um, I found recently in some of my research for this work an old identification guide with my very clumsy big pencil notes of the Latin names of sightings (laughs) and the dates from a trip when I was about six and he took my sister and I down to see the spring in the Western Cape. And it was a journey that changed me forever. Mm-hmm. I, I remember the, the drive through the hills that were dry and full of scrubby bushes. And he told us we were going down to see the flowers. And I was just absolutely unconvinced because white flowers were there. <laughs> and you crest a rise and come down into the valley. And suddenly there are just these sheets of color of pink and yellow and blue. And initially you just see them as colors. And then as we got closer and closer, I started to realize, oh wait, these are the flowers. Mm. And that trip really shaped 
who I was and who I was going to be. And for me, one of the most beautiful things about the, the journey that we took in September was it was very much rewalking that path of my first journey with my grandfather, um, with him there showing me each flower, teaching me the name, teaching me its its shape and its origin and what kind of plant it was. Um, and I, I was, I got to retrace that yeah. um, with a totally new group of people. Yeah. So I want to, before we get to the trip you're referring to in September, you're a contemporary trip in your adulthood as part of this work. You are a white woman living in South Africa, and your grandfather was a, a white man and taught you yep. these names. Describe for listeners what you shared with me a little bit about when your grandfather passed and you inherited his books, some of the kind of disconnections and connections you started making in terms of cultural complexities. Absolutely. And it, it actually was a conversation with Rupert about that early journey, because obviously that trip was in the very late 80s and we went back in the very early 90s. Mm. This is before South Africa was in any way free. This was still under national party leadership, under apartheid leadership. Um, the first time was before uh, Nelson Mandela had been freed from jail. And I only realized that, really. For me, it was a, a lovely memory, uh, a lovely romantic memory, until a conversation, friendly chat with Rupert, where he was like, yeah, and did you talk to any of the people working the land? And what were your thoughts about who owned the land? And I just it, it hit me... Um, like an anvil from the sky that, mm -hmm. no, I hadn't at that time. I mean, I was a kid. I was uh, not aware of what the political context was. But going back and looking at my grandfather's books, some of these books are old. Some of the publication dates go back to the 1920s. And a lot of the writing and the ownership and the description of whose flowers these are and whose lands these are and who the authors are expecting to read the works. I mean, there's the 1921 book that starts with a description of the newly erected union buildings that for us in contemporary South Africa are absolutely an apartheid relic, a symbol of an oppressive regime. And that was very much tied up in plant discussions and horticulture and identification. And that's never more clear than when you look at the older texts where a lot of the names of the plants are racial slurs. Mm. Mm. And some of these names hold over, there's been a lot of good work changing them, but some of these names hold over to this day. Mm. And Looking at the names is this incredibly complex and distressing process because a lot of the names, when you look at the Latin names, it's claiming and ownership and it's very much tied up in the colonial process that started long before apartheid was in law, but very much where the structure of, of the apartheid conflict comes from. It, it goes back to the colonial process of coming into a space and naming a plant as a claim of ownership mm. and not in any kind of consultation with the people who already lived there, already knew the plant, already worked with the plant and had names for the plant. Um, and some of those names are, are now being included in scientific texts, and that's fantastic. Um, I've really enjoyed the journey of, of trying to put old names or traditional names, um, indigenous names, with the Latin names that we know, 
but a lot of the start of this journey for me was really exploring that white privilege <laughs> that went kind of unexamined that is very very much baked into our South African botanical and, and horticultural history. Yeah. Rupert, tell us a little bit about your early life and background and the influences that led you to being a plant person and on this path. Hi, yes. Um, so my parents all it's actually funny on both sides of the family they're very planty um in fact my father's uncle had a nursery um so when my dad grew up that was their job to work in the nursery and um so that's one limb and as a result my dad and his siblings are all quite into gardening and then on my mom's side my grandparents who um when I was growing up, lived in the town of Mamre, which we'll talk about a bit later again. Mm -hmm. um, they had this kind of like a half acre plot almost, um, which went from the house down to the local stream. And my grandfather had this massive garden that we used to play hide and seek in as kids. Um, and my grandma's always had a bit of a green thumb as well in terms of growing food and so forth. So that's the first kind of um, tranche and then the the next um, layer is my dad is um, he, he studied botany is one of his subjects he's he's a biology teacher then later lecturer um, and so growing up we were very outdoorsy in terms of he was always taking us places um, as a family and you know when you're traveling with someone with botanical training you know the names <laughs> or you get to know the names like um, Meg was talking about their grandfather as well and you know you just take that for granted. But even so, um, I didn't really think of it as a career option. You know, so when I went to university, my science marks were good. I I wrote in for several courses and I did um, a science degree. But um, I only latterly latched onto botany as as a major. And um, the the switch kind of flicked when I went to this conference called the Famous Forum. And um, I met people who are working in conservation in the Fainbos region of, of South Africa. And uh, then, then it just, this whole new world opened up. Um, and specifically, I ran into a, a new project at the time, it's still running, called Custodians of Rare and Endangered Wildflowers. Mm -hmm. um, and their they thrust is basically because we've got so many threatened and endemic species in in South Africa and especially in the Cape um, to try and find interested volunteers and get them to go out and do um, monitoring of these species. So a citizen science, as we call it now. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And this, this was just like amazing. And I jumped in there, I became an intern and the rest is history, essentially. <laughs> <laughs> and so is that your specialty in the botanical world is the rare and endangered species of the the fine the boss yeah so um i'm a fine boss specialist and um that's where like most of our, our threatened plants in the country sit is in this particular biome uh -huh. so it's it's quite similar to parts of california it's also mediterranean fire driven low yeah. nutrient um and our, our endemism rates are just off the charts so right. <laughs> right. There's, there's many species i i just did a quick google um, and in an area kind of four times smaller than California, uh, which according to the California, uh, was it Fish and Game, I think, mm -hmm. um, website, you've got 6,500 species. Yeah. Uh, and we've got 10,700 in, <laughs> in a about a quarter of that size. Right. So it's, everything's kind of smushed in, in, right. um, in a very small space um, and the rapid rates of turnover. So it makes conservation quite tricky as well because yeah. we've got protected areas, but in order to capture the range of, of diversity that we've got, um, you need lots more protected areas and you know, um, no one's got money for conservation. <laughs> 
We're speaking this week with artist Megan Godsell and botanist Rupert Kuopman, who together with a team of others jointly known as Turning Into Flowers, are artistically and botanically exploring the relationships between plants and people, race politics and plant politics, how violence against human communities and violence against plant communities are intertwined, and how the bridge to healing and restored relationships between plants and people can also be intertwined, specifically in their homes in South Africa. Stay with us. We'll be right back after a break. Ah, here we are in the fresh air of a fresh new year. Megan's touching on the concept of intimacy in reference to our human relationships with flowers, with plants, with all that is more than human, is at the heart of why I wanted this episode to be the one to kick off the new year of Cultivating Place. That, along with the idea of the immense species diversity in South Africa, and that region of the world being the seat of much of the world's speciation outward, from there to here. Megan's use of the word intimacy sent me straight to my Oxford English Dictionary, not because it could gloss for me anything more important than what my own intuition already knows, but for the historic tracing of the word and its etymological origins. Two things were of note to me. The first being a lower level definition of intimacy as inner or inmost nature, intrinsic, an inward quality or feature. And next, the glossing of the word intima from anatomy or or zoology, meaning the innermost coating or membrane of a part or organ, especially a vein or an artery. Now, I'm no linguist, and perhaps these two words are not even in fact related, one not perhaps being the root of the other. But the poet and gardener in me know there's a direct correlation between what we know of our plant companions, wild or cultivated, and their intimate relationship to our very selves. We are them. They are us. Without them, we are little. Without them, we are lost. Megan describes, quote, the dynamic of intimacy that I was introduced to very young, my own beginnings with flowers. And from there, her gradual and growing awareness of the plant kingdom in which what could be and often is seen as a blur of green in the background. How this came into meaningful focus as masses and masses of individual, colorful, unique flowers and plants, all with their own places and natures. This sharpening focus can, for any of us, come with its challenges and discomforts. As Megan describes when she realized and began to appreciate the often violent white privilege baked into the traditional study of horticulture. This is a hard truth to face for us all. The discomfort of understanding, following, and facing how privilege and the colonial process of violating, taking, and claiming, then naming and appropriating, are baked into so much of horticulture as our mainstream culture teaches it. But without getting to this understanding and through it, we can never reach the comfort of true caring and intimacy with our planet and its plants and people, with our very own inner cores and natures and places. And that intimacy that Megan and Rupert are exploring and building into their artistry, their science, and their conservation strategies, it gets us to a place we all want to go, I think. We are all custodians of rare and endangered wildflowers. Now, back to our conversation with the team known as Turning Into Flowers. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. 
We're back after a break to hear more about Turning Into Flowers, a botanical and visual artistic project with Megan Godsell and Rupert Kuopman. Together, the two are exploring the complexities of plant and human relationships in South Africa. Welcome back. To give a little bit of descriptive analogy for, for listeners, the, and especially those of us who haven't been to South Africa, it is that the Feinbos, which is one of the biomes that are specific to South Africa as a whole, is very similar, as you were mentioning, to areas of California, specifically our chaparral. And so it's, right. it's very, very dry. And as Megan was visually describing when she was on the trip with her grandfather, it looks very bleak at most, uh, at many times of the year. It looks like there's nothing there. <laughs> but if you get close <laughs> and if you get a little bit of water, um, it is just incredibly alive with diversity and, and plants. And I, I want to just get the same kind of clarity on your cultural background than we got on, right. on Megan's. Okay, right. So my family is uh, from what we call in South Africa, the colored cultural and racial grouping. Um, and it's, it's not as neat as, as taxonomy where we, where we can <laughs> put it down <laughs> um, in terms of, of what it is. Cause, cause colored is quite a contentious, um, category because uh depending on who you listen to it's uh it's the mixture of descendants of slaves um uh colonizers as well as as the indigenous people of south africa mm. um and so uh, this is the thing about the part that is that it smashed like a bunch of people just into into this uh one size fits all box mm. Um, and, and within the community, there's, there's so many different cultural limbs, actually, right. uh, that we could talk about that for a really long time. How, how do you describe your, your, the, the cultural history and, and richness of your family? In, in my family, it's, um, it is a bit more kind of that generic thing because there they are um, different kind of uh, Malay and other influences. And then there's also quite a bit of European influence. And mm -hmm. as the, the documentation goes, um, because of our history, the European bits are documented much better than the brown bits. Mm. And um, yeah, that's that's what's interesting about it. Mm -hmm. the, the gardening sides or plant sides of either one of your family, do they uh, come from a cultural history as well? So were you as a child learning traditional names as well as botanical Latin names, Europeanized Latin names? It was more kind of the, the trade names. So okay. um, I, th I think, you know, with um, with the, the flowers, it was your normal garden flowers like pansies and those sorts of things. So nothing mm -hmm. too local. Uh, but because my dad had studied botany and um, got quite into the Fainbow stuff, he was able to to give those names. Um, but also growing up, so around about that time that Meg was talking about doing a trip, we um, indigenous gardening wasn't really a thing um, with native species until a bit later on. So everyone kind of had the same sort of generic gardening and that's been stressful for some people now because we've had the drought in the last couple of years. Mm. And, um, but there has been a, a growing appreciation of using locally indigenous plants um, in a gardening context. The, the coming together of all of these threads is so, it's so <laughs> fabulous to me because it does speak of all of these layers and the, the kind of richness that is brought to the table it, it, in what can be incredibly beneficial and regenerative ways, culturally, verbally, visually, and botanically, God willing. So I'm not sure who to start with here, but I would love you to talk about how the two of you came together over Twitter and then the kind of blossoming of the idea for what we are calling the project. Maybe I'll have Rupert start with this and talk about how you met, how you came together, and how you started on this path of what you are calling this project. It's interesting. I've, I've always been a bit of an, an online person since the early days of chat and so forth. So the, every time a new 
online option, you know, when we eventually got Facebook in South Africa and Twitter, etc., came along, I was on it and looking to kind of learn and meet people. Because the, the other thing about the background um, that that we come from is that 20 years ago, someone, people like me and Megan would definitely not easily get to meet each other, except maybe in a work context. So that's that's what's good about social media and just our our society being a little bit more open now that is that we can have these friendship relationships, but also you've got to work quite hard, you know, because spatially our neighborhoods and and towns are still quite cut up. So if if you were just going to stay within um, the people that you grew up with and and went to school with and so forth, the odds are in South Africa that you would still largely within your own cultural slash racial group mm -hmm. then we met online and um you know the conversation went and we um just continued like building on it and eventually met up in real life megan's gonna have to remind me when exactly that was <laughs> but um <laughs> uh and and then it's just been this very long conversation built around plants but like it's lovely to have her kind of artistic slash other vision of it, whereas I'm, you know, with the scientific and just to to mesh that and, and get her perspective on things. And it's it's good to think about things outside of just the boxes that I work with, because ultimately um, we're trying to help reestablish people's relationships with plants and um, We've got these amazing plants that are found here nowhere else. And a lot of times people are not yet aware of how special our, yeah. our plants are and that you can, if you um, take a lawnmower to the side of the road, potentially take out the species <laughs> without yeah. knowing about it yeah. because these are the tolerances that we operate in. Yeah. And, you know, I think that idea of um, the how where when you live in a place that has such a great diversity and i live in such a place but as you've already mentioned it, my place is pale compared to your place and my place is pretty incredible in terms of botanical and fauna diversity as a result of floral diversity and yeah. the walking outside and seeing it you're like oh whatever you know, that's that's a pink flower. I don't know. Um, and to to bring that attention is is huge and so important. And at the same time, as a botanical scientist and through a university system, and I'm projecting here, but most people mm -hmm. go through a process wherein they're asked to take their emotions out of it. You're measuring, you're studying, you're collecting data. Right. You are not supposed to be there on an emotional level. But unless you get to people's emotional level – you aren't going to get that kind of engagement and ownership and protective love for these things we're trying to save, right? So, and and the thing is, uh, because the the biggest our our issue, the biggest issue in terms of species and habitat loss is through development, um, and you, the developers have quite specific goals. So you know they're trying to build more more housing or do a mine, which is going to mean, mean money or convert um, natural areas to orchards for fruit. So, yeah, it's it, it's very measurable, their outcome, whereas ours is a little bit more fuzzy. It's, you know, we're trying to make sure that we keep a representative suite of species for the future, <laughs> that you can't really convert that to, to rands and cents or dollars and cents. So it, it is slightly... Um, Esoteric isn't necessarily the word, but it's heading in that direction. Yeah, yeah. And so in comes Megan with her emotive stories and her artistic heart. Tell us how this all began and how it blossomed from your side, Megan. For me, it began actually a number of years ago, and I didn't even realize what was happening at the time. Um, in the Kirstenbosch Botanical Garden, there is a rare and endangered species section that also has markers for species that are now extinct. Mm -hmm. And this was about a year after my grandfather had passed away. I found myself walking through this garden and I just, I had to sit down because I was crying so hard. 
I was looking at all of these grave markers, really, mm-hmm. for for species that were just gone. And I couldn't find a way to really think about that emotion. I, I had all these these Latin names in front of me um, for flowers that we'd wiped off the face of the earth. And the overwhelming grief in that moment was really the seed of this project in the same way that the overwhelming joy of my first discovery of the flowers was. And that returned in a number of conversations with Rupert, but particularly when you you get a photo from your friend who is a botanist who works with very endangered species, you never know whether it's going to be a picture of the most incredible flower rising up through the ash of a burned mountain that hasn't been seen for 23 years, mm-hmm. or whether it's going to be the photo of a cleared plot with a yellow bulldozer standing next to it that was one of the last sites of a species. And in these conversations with Rupert, the incredible emotion, the the spectacular beauty and joy and then this deep grief that seemed to need languages outside of what the taxonomy can offer Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um, outside of the scientific space started to weave into threads in my head and I'd been working um, on projects of interactive performance that encourage people not to just come and sit and watch a performance, but to come and play and participate and share their own stories. Mm. And I started thinking about this joy and this grief in a context where people could, could bring their memories and their experience and, and their experiences of finding a new site of a really incredibly endangered species or of finding that site three weeks later wiped out. And for me, that went very quickly to a space of image and ritual and somewhere where we as a human community could come into a really deep conversation with the plant community, with these, these, delicate, fragile, tough as nails, resilient beyond any belief plants um, that keep coming back (laughs) in the most surprising and beyond human circumstances. Um, How could we kind of get beyond our human blinders and move more into the space in between? So thinking about that, that, borderland, that space where humans and plants blend into each other, um, took me to performers and took me to image work and projection, um, because that that is a space where we can visually play with the idea that a petal holds the same shape as an eye that if we project flowers onto the human body or we wear flowers on the human body or we are dancing um, with flowers, the the real similarities between our shapes and the plant shapes have space and become visible. Megan Godsell is a plant lover and creative. She began the project now known as Turning Into Flowers as a way to explore And, she hoped, work toward bridging the connections and disconnections between plant and human relationships in South Africa. With her colleague and friend, botanist Rupert Kuopman, as well as a larger team, Turning Into Flowers provides a forum for us all to consider these relationships in our own lives and places. Stay with us. We'll be right back.
Hey, it's me again, Jennifer. In today's conversation with Rupert and Megan, Rupert points out the benefits of technology and social media in helping to break down cultural barriers that are firmly entrenched in physical life. I actually really love this. There's so much negative to say and report on the use of technology in our lives, but like any tool, well used, they bring great possibility. Out of control, they are harmful. Well and thoughtfully employed with your own values and objectives in mind, they are wonderful resources and aids. Be they apps or phone cameras, GPS, your Instagram community, or your podcast lineup. As Rupert notes, ultimately the work they do is trying to reestablish people's relationships with plants. The Seeds for Turning into Flowers project, as they describe it, are an unlikely marriage of overwhelming joy at knowing flowers and overwhelming grief at nature lost while most of us are not paying attention. Megan expresses how she feels that this spectacular beauty and joy and then this deep grief needs a language beyond language, a space where humans and plants blend into each other, a space where the similarities between our shapes and the plant shapes have space, where we can see and feel how a flower petal holds the same shape as the eye. In the January of You From Here newsletter sent out earlier this week, I outlined some of the resolutions and intentions for 2019 sent in by all of you. With this inaugural episode of the new year with Turning Into Flowers, my greatest wish for you and me is this. Let yourself. Make yourself. Allow time for yourself and your community of family and friends to go into the space with the flowers and just listen to the stories they share. And now back to our conversation with the South African team of botanists, artists, performers, and heartfelt activists known as Turning Into Flowers. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. We're back after a break to hear more about Turning Into Flowers, a botanical and visual project with Megan Godsell and Rupert Kuopman. Together, the two are exploring the complexities of plant and human relationships in South Africa, and by extension, the whole world. Welcome back. Some of some of the phrases the two of you have used in the conversation up to this point really keep coming back to me. These, this idea of the memory that we have as a, as a human species going back in terms of our relationship to plants, and that as a plant might become extinct, and then the people who knew that plant die, we lose those those stories, and we lose those relationships completely. And this re re um, this documenting and uh, reinforcing the importance of those stories, this idea of dynamic intimacy, all tied up into the real urgence for conservation and uh, protection and knowledge, is so so powerful. So tell me about the team you're working with, and describe very specifically uh, the what you are doing as you do it, and maybe walk us through the September trip that you referred to earlier and that you have written to me about, but I would love you to bring listeners up to speed about what exactly you did and who your team were at that time. One of my favorite moments just um as you're speaking about memory and the memory and heritage that is interwoven between humans and plants Mm. one of the first rehearsals for the september trip i had filled our rehearsal space with ginger bush uh tetradenia riparia and it's this 
very ephemeral plant. It's there just on the, the very edge of spring and it has these tiny white blossoms with this incredibly rich scent. And it's um, it grows wild in KwaZulu-Natal along the rivers. And I just wanted to see, these, these are performers who live in Joburg who are coming from an urban background and who didn't have a lot of relationship with flowers coming into this process. Mm. So the first rehearsal with the whole team, we walked down the steps into this dark space that was just full of the tetradenia blossoms with a few candles. And immediately, Copano turned and she said to me, this smells like my grandfather's kitchen. Mm. And Vuyo turned to me and she said, this smells like home. And that moment, my heart just lifted because it doesn't matter that you're from an urban setting, that you're you're from an arts context. The relationship and the memory are there. Mm-hmm. And that's where we began um, our work to prepare for the journey that we took in September. So our, our team that we took in September, um, we began very early on, uh, the very first photo shoot was actually not with a performer. It was with food scientist and seed librarian and um, plant diviner, Zayan Khan, who's a, a, a mutual friend. And I did a tiny little shoot just by myself with Zayan and a chasmanthi mm. Chasmanthi bulbs and dried leaves because it was long past their season, but then we worked with projections of the flowers. So we had the plant in every form. And Zayan works a lot with fermentation and she works with um, the edible elements of the plants. And the corms, Chasmanthi corms and Watsonia corms look very similar. She's been working with ferments of Watsonia corms. So we were having this dialogue of every part of the chasmanthi into Zayan's face and her own relationship and memory with when does this plant flower? What does it look like? What does it mean in my space? And that that moment taught me really what the process would be, what the process needed to be um, for this journey. And that was, it was, almost quite a scary prospect because as structure and taxonomy are, are important for, for performers, we, we like to have a script. We like to know what's happening. We, we like to have a plan. And in that moment with Zayan and the Chasmanthi, I learned that actually what we had to do was go in to the space with the flowers and listen. Mm. And so as we built the team, Tiffany Cornwall joined us. She's one of the most um, receptive, interpretive performers I've worked with. And um, she started coming in for photo shoots. And we would just set up with some live flowers and some images of flowers and let them lead us into a story, um, into a performance, into an image. And what would keep happening, we have this amazing photo and this this incredible um also a riverside species with these beautiful purple flowers and we'd, we'd projected onto her face but her eyes caught the light and afterwards doing the write-up i discovered that actually in in herbal remedy the plant is an eye remedy <laughs> it's it's one of the names is um seer orchis plum um saw eye flower and this keeps happening. It doesn't mm-hmm. stop all yeah. the way through our process, going into the space to create an image or to find the story of the flower. Mm-hmm. So we, Tiffany Cornwall was joined by um, Vuyo and Copano and the three of them with Bopelokun, who is a photographer based in Joburg and Neo Bayapi, who is a photographer based in Cape Town we made this plan that we were going to drive from Johannesburg to Cape Town in spring. 
and find the flowers as they started to appear by the side of the road. Um, and that we would then follow Rupert's directions out into the very intense areas of spring bloom. And we would just follow the stories that the flowers presented to us. Um, we got lost on a tiny little side road and found aloes. We arrived in Cape Town um, late and found arum lilies, um, calla lilies in the most beautiful stormy sunset light. Mm. And and this, this process um, of watching these young artists and young performers fall in love completely and listen and follow the the shapes and the stories and the names of the flowers as they they discovered them um was was just incredible and the names the very heart of our journey um rupert's mentioned his grandparents living in mamre which is a tiny town um on the edge of a very big settlement on the edge of a, another popular holiday destination but it's a tiny almost kind of forgotten town from a lot of the the tourism perspectives and they have a flower festival we went to go and film and learn and discover the stories of this flower festival and on the first day Vuyo and Kapano were just getting a tour they were there in their flower crowns and they were getting a tour from the aunties led by Auntie Sophie, who were explaining the names of each flower. But these these aunties who've been running the festival for, Rupert, it's it's 40 years-ish? Um, a bit less than that. Okay. But it's, it's, okay. it's also on and off. So there's, there's always been a bit of a spring culture. And then um, the formal flower festival is going for at least 25 years, but I, I, okay. it's more than that. <laughs> okay, okay. So in its in its its various informal and formal forms, they've they've been running this this flower festival, and they started this tour of introduction with a disclaimer. They started by telling us they didn't know the proper names. Yeah. They only knew their names. And so Vuyo and Copano got a tour learning the names of all of the flowers, but not the Latin botanical names, learning the names that have been around in the community. And that was just the most incredible kind of to stand on the sidelines and watch that beginning of intimacy and, and love and relationship. And those were the names that we took on with us as we went out and found the flowers growing um, and carried on filming and carried on dancing and carried on with uh, the learning, the flowers, the, the intimacy really started there with those names. How will you use this film and this footage? How have you so far and where do you hope to have it? So we're very excited about 2019 because we are hosting an exhibition of some of the photos we had. We've been working with two photographers all the way, and um, we're hoping to screen the film as part of this, this exhibition that will tie in with the 2019 Mamre Flower Show, but that will also be an exhibition hosted in Cape Town. But for me, one of the most exciting parts of this project has been our digital platforms. Um, which we are also growing. In 2019, the film will also be um, something that we find the right home for. It doesn't have a fixed home yet. But there are also uh, a lot of short films that have come out of this process that will be hosted on our Turning Into Flowers website. And there are written pieces and paintings and art pieces that are also going to join on our Instagram and our website um, as we build up the digital platforms which have a much greater reach than the physical platforms. Rupert, when you, when you look at the process you've been through as a, a man, as a botanist, as a, a, a person of color in this project, 
What what has this meant for you, and what are your hopes for it, Rupert? Yeah, it was really lovely to to be able to personalize it because of all these ties back home. Yeah. Um, so one of the photo shoots, or a couple of them actually, we've taken my three-year-old daughter along as well as my wife. So they've been able to participate and also just observe. And it's lovely for me to get them out into the field um, because it, generally I'm out there running, looking for things. Um, and just to slow down and, and see it through kind of at artist space or at three-year-old pace is, is good, <laughs> a, a nice change of perspective. And then um, also uh, when Bertie was, was or Uncle Bertie was one of the guys in Mamre, um, and he's kind of the local plant expert slash um, herbalist. And um, I, I knew him growing up because he was good friends with my granny. So it's very nice to get back and connect with him on a, on a different level. So it's, it's much, <laughs> we've, we've had a couple of really good afternoons in the, in the last few years because I've been helping out at the Mamre Festival for, for about three, four years now, mm. um, where we just go for a quick walk. Um, and, you know, we, it's the best time of year. It's September and springtime. And there's all these beautiful flowers and he's got his stories and I've got my conservation terms and so forth. And, you know, <laughs> we make it work. Um, and then the, the other aspect is just, um, you know, we, it's been lovely for me to, to try and show the team some of the more obscure things, because I think um, it's a bit like in the animals as well, you know, so everyone comes to Africa and they want to see the big five. Um, and that's just a smidgen of what's available. And it's the same with, with the flowers. So with Fainbos, people get stuck on the proteas and so forth because they're big and showy. And we've looked at some quite obscure little things through the macro lens. Ah. And um, just to, to try and showcase the range of diversity that's available and then tie it back to these stories and uh, as uh, the stories of the people as well as having the the Latin and the conservation statuses and so forth has built it into this kind of multi-dimensional plant thing. <laughs> and and that's fantastic. And and I love showing people um, who've never been here before, like some of the best bits and these uh, the performers that, that Megan brought through because they're so receptive. It was really a pleasure just getting them out there and um, showing them something small yet exquisite or just mass displays. Uh, and, and I really enjoy that aspect of it as well. Thank you both for being guests on the program today. It's been an honor to speak with you. And I am inspired by, by your work and your heart behind it. Thank you Thank very you much. Thank you so much. South Africa is home to more than 22,000 indigenous seed plants from almost 230 different plant families, and it's home to 10% of the world's flowering plant species. It's also home to diverse cultures of people with histories and relationships both rich and complicated, painful and joyful. Artist and plant lover Megan Godsell, botanist Rupert Kuopman, and their team explore the layers of these relationships in their project, Turning Into Flowers. Of Turning Into Flowers, Megan writes, the nature of the project is a combining of perspectives to create a new relationship between human and plant communities. This seems to me like a thought to hold on to in all of our gardens for the new year. Happy New Year, to each of you in your gardens, wild or cultivated. Join us again next week as the conversations continue for a whole nother calendar year on the many ways people engage in and grow from the cultivation of their places. Cultivating Place is a listener-supported co-production of North State Public Radio. For more information and many photos of the Turning Into Flowers project, visit this week's episode notes at cultivatingplace.com. While you're there, you can make your tax-deductible contribution of support to Cultivating Place or subscribe to the podcast so you never miss a conversation. That's cultivatingplace.com. Thank you to everyone who listens and makes this program possible.
Our producer is Sarah Bohannon. Our engineer is Sky Schofield. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. And Happy New Year. I'm Jennifer Jewell.